Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. It is midnight on December the 18th, 1898, in Johannesburg, the heart of the Transvaal Republic. A young Englishman stumbles home after an evening of heavy drinking with his friends. Tom Edgar, a six-foot-six boilermaker from Bootle, Merseyside, is no stranger to the rough and tumble of life on the South African frontier. A drunken midsummer walk through the dark colonial streets offers no fear for an imposing young man who has emigrated thousands of miles from a tough Lancashire home to make his fortune in South Africa's El Dorado. By day, his adopted city clangs to the sounds of the seemingly bottomless gold mines which have made Johannesburg one of the richest spots on the face of the earth a magnet for European capitalists, Africana farmers, British immigrants, and tens of thousands of pitilessly exploited African laborers forced to toil in the gloom of its mine shafts. But by night, Johannesburg is vice city. Monte Carlo superimposed on Sodom and Gomorrah, the bastard son of a Victorian colonial city and a rugged Wild West mining town. Taverns, bordellos and gambling dens offer the irresistible lure of alcohol, cards and women to the European underclass who manage the mines on behalf of the Rand Lords. For these desperados, indulgence offers a much needed respite after a day barking orders at Africans in the twilight world of the deep mines, 
where death from explosions and rock falls comes swiftly and without warning. With his imposing frame and confident gait, his huge limbs lubricated by several drinks after a shift at Tarry's engineering works, Edgar fears no man. And why should he? As a white man in the Transvaal, Edgar sits at the top of Johannesburg's rigidly enforced racial hierarchy. None of the dirt-poor African laborers on which the mines depend would dare to impede this mountain of a man. As he reaches the alley next to his tin-roofed bungalow, one of several cramped properties perched near the vast Salisbury mine, Edgar's wife Bessie hears the reassuring sound of her husband's echoing footsteps. But Edgar does not announce himself. Not yet. Squinting into the dark at the end of the alleyway, he makes out his neighbor Foster in the shadow, urinating against the wall. Foster appears to turn towards him. Wotzak, Foster calls. Edgar is not sure if he hears him properly. What did you say? Anger mounting from the insult, he doesn't wait for an answer. Foster barely registers Edgar's presence much less the catastrophic swing that brings him to the ground, laid out cold alongside the pet dog to whom his insults were addressed. Suddenly, all hell breaks loose, cries a neighbor, convinced that Foster lies dead in the dust. Edgar remains calm amid the clamor. He enters his home, greets his wife, sits down, and awaits the law. Minutes later, four Boer police officers hammer on the door. Open up, Marco! They shout in Afrikaans, the commanding language passed down from their Dutch forebears. They hammer again. What happens next remains shrouded in claim and counterclaim, but will be one of the sparks in a giant conflagration that lights up South Africa and will require the resources of the world's most powerful empire to stamp out. A Boer officer, Jones, throws himself against the cottage door. It gives way. Inside, Edgar, armed with an iron stick, bears down on him. As Edgar strikes, Jones raises his pistol. Shooting Edgar dead at point-blank range. The century-long battle between Britain and Boer has claimed its latest victim. But as we shall see, Tom Edgar's untimely death will be the most consequential yet. Within days, thousands of Edgar's fellow British subjects are protesting on the streets of Johannesburg, demanding immediate redress from the alleged tyranny of their government. For although a majority of Johannesburg's whites are British, the city and the wider Transvaal are under the firm control of the Afrikaners, or Boers, descendants of the Dutch pioneers who first wrestled the land off the native Africans by force of arms. Edgar's death at police hands is just one ingredient in a toxic brew of British grievances against the Africana rulers that threaten to boil over. Harassed by the authorities, deprived of the vote and political power, taxed to the hilt, for 60,000 proud subjects of the British Empire Taking orders from a Boer minority is too much to bear. For the Boers, meanwhile, the British are little more than Oitlanders, simply foreigners. 
neither the British nor the Boers consider the tens of thousands of black African, confined to insanitary living conditions and working in desperate conditions in the mines, as worthy of any rights whatsoever. The debate is simply over which white men will rule. The Oitlander grievances, some genuine, others wildly exaggerated, will offer a convenient pretext for British expansionists, who have long craved control of South Africa, its strategic position, and its monumental gold and diamond resources. The Boers, meanwhile, reluctant to give up any power in their own fiefdom, steel themselves to fight for everything they hold dear, their sovereignty, their strict Calvinist religion, their bullying supremacy over black Africans, and their freedom from British imperialism. For within a year of Edgar's death, the British will engineer a war to deprive the Boers of their statehood, their resources, and their pretensions of independence. The titanic military struggle will shape an empire and the future of South Africa for generations to come. This is the story of the Boer War. This is Wars That Shaped the World. The Boer War proved to be, in the words of historian Thomas Pakenham, one of the longest, costliest, bloodiest, and most humiliating campaigns that Britain fought between the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. In this podcast series, we will explore the causes, the carnage, and the contested aftermath of this grand imperial misadventure. It was a war which many predicted would be over in weeks but which degenerated, first into a series of humiliating British military defeats and sieges, and then into a pitiless guerrilla war characterised by farm burnings, disease, and the mass internment of civilians in deadly concentration camps. On this grand canvas will be drawn some of the most compelling characters of the age, 
from Mahatma Gandhi to Winston Churchill, Cecil Rhodes to Jan Smuts, Paul Kruger to Robert Baden-Powell. The intimate experiences of the war made heroes and villains out of its famed protagonists. It was a war which upended the racial politics of South Africa, pitting white against white, white against black, and setting the stage for the cruelties of apartheid. It was a war that proved hugely controversial in Britain, sparking political upheaval and furious opposition. The distant echoes of the Boer War continue to be felt to this day in Britain and South Africa, but for many, it remains a little-known historical footnote, overshadowed by the carnage of the Great War just 13 years after its close. As we tell the story of this pivotal conflict, you will hear from the leaders, soldiers and civilians who lived, fought and died in the Imperial Maelstrom. In this first episode, we will explore the causes of the war and investigate how a conflict that few wanted or expected shook the British Empire to its core. Welcome to the Boer War, Episode 1, Working Up a Crisis. As the British protesters pour with righteous fury onto the streets of Johannesburg to demand justice for the death of Tom Edgar, one Briton, at least, is quietly pleased with the direction of events. British High Commissioner and Governor of the Cape Colony, Alfred Milner, looks out on Cape Town's Table Mountain, mulling what he calls his little corner of the imperial chessboard. Now in the second year of his governorship, a natural step up the ladder for a statesman just out of Egypt. Milner has vast ambitions for his next play. A glittering Oxford student and society mainstay, German-born Milner, all bristling moustache and severe parting, dwells on his vision for South Africa. Ever since the British wrestled control of the Cape from the Netherlands in 1806, official policy, he believes, has led to one disaster after another. The more I know of it, the more profound is the abyss of blunders in the past. He writes. What had Britain to show after almost a century of supposed South African dominance? A precarious hold at the foot of the continent, at best, and few claims to the loyalty of the whites or blacks that live there. Britain's seizure of the Cape triggered a vast Boer exodus, the fabled Great Trek, into the heart of South Africa. Thousands of Boers, fiercely protective of their religion, their independence, and outraged at British attempts to outlaw slavery, drove their wagons and pack animals into the interior, where they defeated and drove the Africans from their lands and founded two independent Boer republics, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. While that was bad enough for Britain, a series of major gold discoveries throughout the 1880s began to permanently shift the balance of power from the British-controlled Cape towards the Transvaal. All Britain has to show for its half-hearted efforts, Milner believes, 
is tenuous control over the Cape Colony, where Afrikaners outnumber the British and the agrarian colony of Natal, centered on the port city of Durban. Multiple attempts to end Boer dominance over the interior have ended in humiliation. Britain's 1877 annexation of the Transvaal ended in ignominy on 27th of February 1881, when 92 British troops were shot down at the disastrous Battle of Majuba Hill. Almost 15 years later, another attempt to seize the Transvaal by force ended in the Jamison Raid, an embarrassment of international proportion. Buccaneers, under the pay of mining magnate Cecil Rhodes' British South Africa Company, led by Rhodes' right-hand man, Leander Starr Jameson, blundered their way into the Transvaal in a deluded attempt to provoke a British uprising in Johannesburg. 18 were killed before the rest were carted away in disgrace to a Pretoria prison. The Jameson raid poisoned the well, destroying trust between British and Boer at the Cape, ending Rhodes' Cape Prime Ministership and leading to a permanent legacy of mistrust between the Transvaal and Britain. For a zealot like Milner, a self-proclaimed British race patriot, with a firm admiration for expansionist German leaders Bismarck and Frederick the Great. These are poor returns indeed. South Africa, he believes, is a weak link in the empire. Sitting astride the sea route to Britain's Indian Empire, it will remain an irresistible prize to great power rivals Germany and France. Their unhealthy interest piqued by the Transvaal's position atop one of the greatest gold-bearing reefs in the world. Time, Milner believes, is no longer on Britain's side. If the country does not act swiftly to end Transvaal independence, the Boers could conspire with Britain's European rivals to oust it from South Africa. Instead, Milner envisages South Africa's future as a white-ruled dominion under the British flag, a sort of Canada or Australia if only the government has the ambition to force the Boer republics into the British fold. The role of the Africans who make up the huge majority of the South African population is clear. They will toil for the white man. The ultimate vision is a self-governing white community supported by well-treated and justly governed black labor from Cape Town to the Zambezi. He writes, but with the British government and public reluctant to expend resources, how does Milner hope to achieve British supremacy? His plan involves the mobilization of political and public opinion in Britain and South Africa in favor of an aggressive strategy, culminating, if necessary, in a war to destroy the power of the Boers forever. Impeccably connected to the political elite, he will charm society's most influential, all the while demanding unprecedented concessions from the Boers, which they cannot hope to meet without surrendering their independence. In his own words, he will work up a crisis. 
So, as British protesters fume at Tom Edgar's death and demand immediate political concessions from their Transvaal leaders, Milner sees the makings of a popular cause which he can use to rally support behind a much more aggressive South African policy. The Edgar affair may be very important and may give us the right remonstrance and action, which we have not hereto had. One man stands above all others as the figure whose support in this venture will be non-negotiable. Striding through Highbury, his vast Birmingham estate, bending now and again to inspect his beloved orchids, British Colonial Secretary Joseph Chamberlain is a Victorian political colossus, close to the peak of his formidable powers. A self-made man to the core, the first industrialist to enter the highest sphere in British politics, according to his biographer, Chamberlain has cleaved a unique path through an era of extraordinary change. A man constantly in search of the next bruising challenge, Chamberlain is not given to nostalgic reminiscences. But if he peered through his ever-present eyeglass back over his life's journey, what he saw would be extraordinary. As a promising youth, he left his London home to work in his uncle's modest Birmingham screw business with an aptitude for accountancy, flair for leadership, and inability to suffer fools, he forcefully consolidated an entire industry, drove out the competition, and grasped the crown of Screw King, all while gaining a reputation for progressive relations with his contented workforce. But Chamberlain's business success was but one aspect of a multifaceted character. A Unitarian by upbringing, Chamberlain is a practitioner of the civic gospel, a Christian-inspired ideology of social and civic improvement. And in his beloved adopted home of Birmingham, one of the emerging metropoles of the Industrial Revolution, where great wealth and poverty sit cheek by jowl, he found a unique canvas to work on. His campaign for compulsory education and pioneering methods of democratic organisation catapulted him onto the Birmingham political stage as the leading radical liberal of his day. In a gloriously productive term as mayor from 1873 to 76, he brought gas and water under city control, demolished slums and rebuilt the town centre. In short, he made Birmingham the best governed city in the world. But even the town which he shaped, and which shaped him in return, could not contain his formidable talents and irrepressible ambitions. Arriving on the national stage, Chamberlain gave every sign of being a national leader in waiting, before coming up against the immovable rock of Liberal Prime Minister William Ewart. Gladstone. The 
fatal break came when Chamberlain led the campaign against Gladstone's attempt to introduce Irish home rule, tearing apart his leader's plans and the Liberal Party in the process. Out in the wilderness, the man who Winston Churchill said made the political weather is looking for a new cause. Chamberlain, supported by a loyal band of breakaway liberal unionists, now in government with the Conservatives, has alighted on a new obsession, which he believes will wrest back the political momentum. That obsession is imperialism. Britain, he believes, has long neglected its hard-won imperial real estate. In the neglected British Empire, Chamberlain sees both a plentiful source of raw materials to supply industry and enormous future markets for British goods. Like Milner, he reserves a special role for Britain's white colony, which he believes could unite to form a mighty imperial federation, perhaps one day overseen by a grand parliament of the empire. is a dream. It is a grand idea. It is one to stimulate the patriotism and statesmanship of every man who loves his country. A canny reader of the national mood, Chamberlain believes popular imperialism is exactly what the public wants, and he intends to give it to them. When given his pick of the ministerial roles in the conservative liberal unionist coalition, Chamberlain opts for the neglected role of colonial secretary and is given enormous leeway in the role by Prime Minister Lord Salisbury. But his early attempts to impose himself on South African affairs almost end in scandal and disgrace when he is caught up in the bungled Jemison raid to seize the Transvaal. How much he really knew about Cecil Rhodes' disastrous plan remains an abiding mystery. But the painful debacle reinforced his belief in the importance of patient imperial policy and shaping public opinion to fit his goal. This extraordinary, restless, assertive man has chosen Alfred Milner as High Commissioner in Cape Town. And it is he whom Milner must convince. Sitting on his Pretoria porch, smoking a huge pipe as the shadows lengthen on Church Street, Transvaal President Paul Kruger broods on the destiny of the Boer nation that he has grown up with. At the age of 74, Kruger is a living embodiment of the Afrikaner people. Born on the frontier, Kruger was but a boy when he embarked on the great trek to free the Boer people from the tyranny of British rule. At the age of just 36, he was already Commandant General, a respected veteran of the wars that smashed Zulu power. His uncouth habits, predilection for dogmatic religious rants, and flat-earth views lead many to dismiss him as a relic. But within his towering black hat lurks a shrewd strategic mind. For as long as he can remember, Kruger has been menaced by the encroachment of British imperialism. The Afrikaners, he fervently believes, are God's chosen people, entitled to their land, resources 
and independence by the Lord's providence. Black Africans, meanwhile, are not of the elect. They are to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. A lifetime of military victories over African opponents has convinced him of this. Now, the storm clouds are again gathering over the promised land. With the support of the Almighty and the Boer people, Kruger is once again battening down the hatches. He has been strengthened immeasurably by his cool dismantling of the Jemison raid. Who better than Owen Paul, as he is affectionately known, to face down British power yet again? True, the discovery of gold and the arrival of tens of thousands of British immigrants to Johannesburg has complicated matters. This once ramshackle agricultural republic has, says historian Thomas Pakenham, leapt forward a century in two decades. But one thing is clear to Kruger. Any gift of the vote to tens of thousands of British interlopers will end Afrikaner power at a stroke. The British, he spits contemptuously, will never dictate terms to God's people. To back this up, his state bristles with one million pounds of new European weaponry, and he has sealed a military alliance with his fellow Boers in the Orange Free State. If this wily, superstitious and autocratic leader is a throwback to an earlier age, his Attorney General, Jan Smuts, represents the urbane face of the Transvaal. A brilliant Cambridge-educated lawyer, Smuts is destined for a life in the corridors of world power. Tall, blonde, blue-eyed and just 27 years old, he will veer wildly over the coming months between believing Britain will not risk a disastrous conflict and predictions of a bloody and glorious war in which his own patriotic fantasy will be realized. Our folk throughout South Africa must be baptized with the baptism of blood and fire before they can be admitted among the great peoples of the world. Either we should be exterminated or fight our way out. When I think of the great fighting qualities that our people possess, I cannot see why we should be exterminated. As the first cool breezes of autumn 1899 blow across the rocky visage of Table Mountain, Alfred Milner's aggressive strategy is beginning to bear fruit. In the aftermath of Tom Edgar's death, Milner has strengthened his ties to the leading British agitators in Johannesburg, especially the rabid South African League. He has held clandestine discussions with the emissaries of the richest Johannesburg gold mining firms, who he needs to support his policies. He hears approvingly of huge British protests in Johannesburg's Market Square, with rebellion in the air and violence in the Transvaal on the rise, Boer thugs use chair legs to break up a British meeting. Milner's longed-for crisis is slowly, but surely, coming to a head. His Johannesburg ally, Percy Fitzpatrick, a leader of the British community, is preparing a 21,000-strong petition demanding immediate intervention from the British government. 
It is just the pretext that Milner needs to force his government to act. His support for the agitators is made explicit. Remember that this is the chance of a lifetime. You have got something now which you may never have again. A man here who is with you heart and soul, as the keenest of the keen of you. But Kruger and Smuts are readying their own gambit to outflank Milner. Their great deal offers the Transvaal British the franchise five years from the date they apply for Boer citizenship, as well as more generous taxes for the British mining houses. It's a serious offer, but the deal is barely on the table before Milner dismisses it as a sham. Keeping the screws on the enemy, he says, remains the priority. Why accept the first offer? The negotiations collapse. Thousands of miles away in London, Joseph Chamberlain receives the latest news from South Africa via telegram. At this stage, war is a long way from his mind. Yes, his new imperial goals depend on a swift resolution of the South African question. But a negotiated solution will offer him the result he craves without a risky war. He will probably accept the granting of extra municipal powers to the British. Frustration growing, Milner channels his vitriol into an infamous dispatch designed to force Chamberlain's hand. The spectacle of thousands of British subjects kept permanently in the position of helots, constantly chafing under undoubted grievances and calling vainly on Her Majesty's government for redress, does steadily undermine the influence and reputation of Great Britain and the respect for the British government within the Queen's dominions. I can see nothing which will put a stop to this mischievous propaganda but some striking proof of the intention of Her Majesty's government not to be ousted from its position in South Africa. While Chamberlain and his Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, will not hastily commit to armed conflict, they promise to throw their diplomatic weight behind negotiations. From now on, negotiations with the Boers will be conducted with the representatives of Her Majesty's government. And who has ensured he will lead these fateful negotiations on behalf of the Crown? None other than High Commissioner Alfred Milner. It is late May 1899 in Bloemfontein, the capital of the Orange Free State. After months of rising tensions, trains commandeered in the Cape Colony and the Transvaal bring the negotiators face to face in this sleepy Boer town. Kruger and Milner, the arch enemies, are meeting at last. The antagonists size each other up and indulge in gentle horseplay. They rib and tease each other. But behind the awkward pleasantries, Alfred Milner is trying his best to derail any chance of a negotiated settlement. It will be total capitulation from the Boers, or nothing. No longer will he be fobbed off with petty concessions. Milner has excluded moderates from his negotiating team. And from the off, it is clear he means to restrict negotiations to the most contested issue of all. The immediate enfranchisement of all the British in the Transvaal. Kruger is unyielding. <laughs> 
If we give them the franchise tomorrow, we may as well give up the Republic. Still, as negotiations founder and Milner threatens to end the conference, Kruger makes his most generous offer yet. Squinting at events from thousands of miles away, an increasingly agitated Chamberlain counsels Milner to be patient, convinced that the president has yet to make his final offer. But on the 5th of June, Milner ends the charade once and for all. One of the best chances for peace is gone. Over the next few months, negotiations will continue fitfully. But it is clear that trust, patience and goodwill are utterly exhausted. Even offers from Kruger that exceed Milner's initial demands are dismissed. Chamberlain's views wax and wane. At times, he finds Milner rather trying a disruptive influence bent on war at all costs. No one, he says, would dream of fighting over two years in a qualification period. And he admits that the technical cases belli is a weak one. But at other times, he sympathizes with the plight of the British in Johannesburg and plays his part in swinging the domestic public behind their cause. Despite Chamberlain's misgivings, it is clear that Milner increasingly puffed up by his own rhetoric and sure of his place in history, is now firmly in control of events. Loyal British South Africa has risen from its long degradation and stands behind me with an enthusiasm which has not been known since before Majuba. It is a great thing to be leader of a people. Finally, Chamberlain's patience snaps, accusing Kruger of dribbling out reforms like water from a squeezed sponge. He warns that the sands are running down the glass. Having staked his credibility on major concessions from the Transvaal, Chamberlain has found himself backed into a corner. Perhaps a show of arms will succeed where diplomacy has failed. The Boers, after all, may capitulate when presented with the might of the British army. A full-scale war remains unlikely. But events are now moving very quickly. At a meeting with the Prime Minister, Chamberlain lays out the case to send tens of thousands of British reinforcements to South Africa to shake the Boers out of their complacency. Britain's international credibility depends on a show of force, he insists. Believing that further concessions are futile, Kruger, too, is increasingly giving up on diplomacy. If we are to lose our independence, let it be taken from us by force. But do not ask me to be a consenting party. But as the possibility of war draws ever closer, other participants are beginning to suffer severe misgivings. Prime Minister Lord Salisbury privately castigates Milner and his jingoistic supporters, confiding his doubts about the wisdom of the entire enterprise. I see before us the necessity for considerable military effort, and all for people whom we despise, and for territory which will bring no profit and no power to England. As tens of thousands of British troops pour into South Africa, reinforcing the borders of the Cape Colony and Natal, and awaiting the government's ultimatum to the Boers, it is clear that the die is cast. The Boers, meanwhile, are preparing themselves for a long 
and hard struggle. Set off the coast. South Africa stands on the eve of a frightful bloodbath, out of which our folk shall come either as hewers of wood and drawers of water for a hated race, or as victors, founders of a united South Africa, or one of the great empires of the world. Writes Jan Smuts to the Transvaal executive. Even some of the most rabid pro-British voices fear the reality of war. Months earlier, Percy Fitzpatrick, Milner's man in Johannesburg, warned darkly of the likely consequences. Our war will extend from the Zambezi to the ocean. It will divide the races and states. It will split us from one end to the other. Communities divided, families divided, father against son, brother against brother. God knows where the thing will end. It will mean utter ruin to South Africa. Yet, as South Africa stares into the abyss, few appeals for peace are being heard. Milner, for one, is not a man given over to doubts. British South Africa is prepared for extreme measures and is ready to see vindication of British authority. On the 28th of September, the Transvaal mobilises its troops. On the 2nd of October, the Orange Free State joins it. Britain has organised its biggest expeditionary force for over a century. As Chamberlain drafts his final ultimatum to the Boers, events appear to be firmly in Britain's command. The timing of the war and its outcome are not up for debate. But they haven't gambled on the Boers making the first move. On the 11th of October, 1899, the first Boer troops pour into the British colonies. The Boer War has begun. Next, on wars that shaped the world. We had to advance amidst a perfect hail of bullets and shells, but the brutes did not fire until we were close to them. The gunners were mowed down like grass. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by David Thomas. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor. Holy smokes.